It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Will Summer, this is my third to last episode hosting the Fever Dreams pod. How are you feeling about that? Good, and I have one thing on my mind. Why isn't Madison Cawthorn going to these orgies? <laughs> you and me both, man. Catch the audience up to speed on what this means. Sure. So Madison Cawthorn, congressman from North Carolina, youngest. Hardest working man in Washington, D.C. Yes, youngest, I believe, elected member of Congress in history. And so Madison was doing a little, I'd say maybe soft QAnon signaling this week. He gave an interview and he said to a conservative media outlet, And he said, to paraphrase here, things in D.C. are so crazy. All these guys in their 60s and 70s invited me to orgies. And also, they love doing key bumps of cocaine. Okay, first of all, Madison, I'm in my 30s. I don't live in Washington, D.C. anymore. And you should shut the fuck up about this stuff in public. We all saw what happened to the blindfolded (laughs) piano player who ran his fucking mouth to reporters too much. I was going to say, this sounds a little personal to you, Swift. But yes, continue. Key bumps of coke. Elderly people, like in the Biden and Trump age rage, being like, allegedly, Madison Cawthorn, come to my orgy at Georgetown. Yeah, so he sort of brings this up out of nowhere. Like, the way the interviewer set him up was sort of like, things in Washington are real bad, huh? And that's your cue to talk about, like, pork barrel spending. <laughs> and then he instead says, yeah, they had these orgies they invited me to. And I said, no way, I don't want to go to this orgy. Lame, lame. Absolute buzzkill. Let's break this down orgy-wise and then cocaine-wise. So I think the coke thing, look, people have been known to do coke in D.C. That doesn't seem that crazy to me. I don't think he's really hanging out with these congressmen who are doing bumps, but we'll leave that aside. I think the orgies one is really catching my eye. The reason I said it's kind of soft QAnon signaling is I think the implication here is not that the congressmen, Madison didn't quite spell it out, but it's not that the congressmen are having orgies that only other congressmen are invited to, yes? There's an implication here that I think women, perhaps either they're sex workers, or I think Madison didn't, Cawthorn didn't quite say this, but I think if you're a QAnon person, you could assume these are like traffic children as well, like a Pizzagate type situation. And just to confirm this, that people were getting this implication, I read the comments on a couple conservative media articles about this. And of course, they were all like, I wonder if the orgy was a comet ping pong <laughs> and stuff like that. This wasn't just my antenna that were off. A lot of people were picking this up. So this is interesting because you might think that if you're one of these Republican congressmen, because he specifically says he's not like Democrats are inviting me. These are the depraved, decadent rhinos who are inviting me. If you're one of these rhinos, you might be a little offended. Oh, this is so good. This is so good. Okay, when I first saw this clip, I think over the weekend, I didn't think that much of it because it's like Mass and Cawthorn. He's basically being paid on the taxpayer dime to just post. 
and to just troll and just be on Capitol Hill as barely a functioning lawmaker. He's just there to do performative MAGA shit. So I just thought, okay, this is just something Madison Cawthorn does. It's like a fart in a hurricane. It's going to go away. It's kind of funny, but let's just get on with the rest of our weekend. So now, this was posted on Twitter about an hour ago before we started recording on Tuesday of this week. And I'm quoting Olivia Beavers who is a congressional reporter for Politico. Multiple sources tell me leader Kevin McCarthy says he plans to talk to freshman representative Madison Cawthorn over his orgy remarks. <laughs> Told several House R's stood up who were upset. They said it wasn't okay. They don't believe it, etc. That kind of sounds like they said it wasn't okay. <laughs> like, hey, buddy, uh, we have an omerta here. <laughs> It gets better. Olivia was hearing that Representative Steve Womack stood up, said he hardly ever stands to talk. He has to say something about this because now he's getting questions about which members partaking in orgies after Carthorne suggested they are happening in D.C. along with the use of cocaine. She was also told that Carthorne was not there this morning. At this is a Republican meeting. Yes. <laughs> It is, like you said, I mean, you kind of think he says, oh, okay, it's orgies, whatever, okay, kind of Madison Cawthorn thing to say. But if you kind of put it in the context of your own workplace, like if someone here worked at the Daily Beast and was like, oh, I'm really shaking things up at the Daily Beast, they keep inviting me to orgies and stuff, you know, they said this in public, and then we'd say, hey, you know, come on. And the other thing to consider here, right, is I've kind of poked at the QAnon connection here before, but typically QAnon people, conspiracy theorists in general, the Republican grassroots who are increasingly convinced that public schools are are all a scheme to groom school children. They go off of like the tiniest, tiniest thing, right? They get like a book about an anti-racist baby, right? And they go crazy. So imagine how crazy they're going when a congressman is like, yeah, we have a bunch of drug-fueled orgies up here. Oh yeah, not even a hint, not even like a TV ad where they have to parse like a single frame of it to be like, this is Donald Trump trying to tell us through his campaign ad that James Comey was sent to Gitmo last Thursday or anything like that. This is just him just laying out explicitly, oh yeah, those things that you paint these incredibly extra, incredibly reptilian versions of. Yeah, I'm claiming on the record that that's happening right now. It's really incredible. I can't wait to see how this shakes out. I mean, is Madison Cawthorn going to back down from the orgy? Was he like, maybe it was just a key party? Maybe I misinterpreted some some signals I thought I was picking up? Maybe I just saw it in a Stanley Kubrick movie and just like Reagan think he liberated a Nazi camp because he saw a film of it. I saw it and now think it actually happened to me and that it's real. I think that's the best excuse and the best way to get out of this. But I mean, okay, on top of anything else, I think Madison Cawthorn's greatest sin throughout all of this is trying to portray Republican lawmakers and elite establishment Republicans in Washington, D.C. as far cooler on a social and personal level than they have ever been in their entire lives. Now, okay, moving on to something that is unsurprisingly also QAnon related. Will Summer, you've been doing a lot of digging and reporting lately on Ginny Thomas and how what she was texting to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, that a good deal of it was actually rooted not just in QAnon flavoring, not just QAnon light stuff, but pretty full-on hardcore 
Q shit. Is that correct? It's QAnon. It's maybe Iraqi dinars. It is really like some really wacky stuff here that we got from Ginny Thomas, wife of Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice. So a few days ago, the Washington Post published these text messages that Ginny Tom that they clearly got from the I believe the January 6th committee. I think that was clear. That basically Ginny Thomas sent to then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows shortly after the election saying, oh, you know, you have to overturn the election, all this stuff. But this wasn't kind of your vanilla kind of coup. I mean, this was deep coup. So basically, what the messages reveal, I think, is that Ginny Thomas is either a QAnon believer herself, or maybe more concerningly, has, like so many people on the right, sort of like become a QAnon believer without realizing it. Right. Like, she is not all evidence available to the public really dramatically paints a portrait of a woman who is not doing a bit. Right, exactly. I mean, she's not wearing, like, Q shirts or saying in these text messages, like, where we go on, we go all. But the stuff she's talking about is QAnon. And I just want to clarify that, as you've reported before, there are heavy hitters in that sort of batshit conspiracist uh, MAGA movement, like Michael Flynn, where there is literally audio recording where it seems to heavily suggest that he is like, okay, I'm doing this because it's personally beneficial to me and the rubes believe it, even though I think it's bullshit. Ginny Thomas is very much in the category where now publicly revealed correspondence of private messages and communications shows that she is in perhaps the exact opposite camp, that she seems to actually buy this shit. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the people on, they would call on Arrested Development who didn't get the magic tricks, the howdy do dats, right? <laughs> so in this case, we have Ginny Thomas is sort of representative of, I think, a lot of other disappointed Trump voters. There's a few days after the election. It hasn't been called for Biden yet, but it shortly will be in this time area. And she's texting Meadows, but she's like, hey. It looks pretty grim, but I just saw an InfoWars clip from this guy named Steve Pachenik, and we'll get into him in a second, but this guy who's basically spouting QAnon stuff and saying that, well, Trump used these watermarks. The whole election defeat was really sort of a to-catch-a-predator-style sting to catch a voter fraudster because we use these watermarks on the ballots, and we're going to prove that Biden stole the election. And then she starts sending him this stuff that she's cribbing from, I believe, an Iraqi dinar site, where she's saying, like, these Democrats were fake stream media reporters. I guess we'd probably be on that list, are being arrested and detained for ballot fraud. And over the coming days, we'll be living in barges off Gitmo. Sounds, I don't know, kind of a, a little boat vacation. Mark Meadows' responses to her while he's still in his final days working in the Trump White House, his responses to her are oftentimes like, okay, thank you, Jenny. <laughs> Wow, interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like when people send us tips and it's like, well, interesting if true, for sure, Ginny. So what I'm trying to get at here is Ginny Thomas is revealed in these messages to be like so deeply red-pilled. I mean, this is way beyond, oh, I read this weird article on Getter or what have you. You know I mean? She's deep in it. I mean, she's talking about core QAnon stuff like Democrats being, the Biden crime family being sent to Guantanamo Bay to face a military tribunal. And let me just pull out two strands here. I mentioned Steve Pachenik, this is a guy who has some kind of like hazy national security background and is a big InfoWars guy. He's like a 9-11 truther, Sandy Hook truther, and then a, even a Pearl Harbor truther, kind of a throwback. Wait, then who did Pearl Harbor? Or is this the classic conspiracy theory that FDR let it happen so that he could do war? 
I'm not 100% up on what he thinks. He definitely thinks it was a false flag of some kind. But he's also a guy who claims to have arrested the Pope. That's my old job. You think of a credible guy. I mean, he's not what you think of. But basically, Steve Bachanek here, he had this video and he kind of was, he went on InfoWars and said, oh, this watermark thing. Oh, it's all a scheme. Don't worry. Trump's about to retake the White House. And she seems to have really fallen for it. Could we play a clip of this thing that Ginny Thomas apparently fell for? What happened was we marked, watermarked every ballot with what's called the QFS blockchain encryption code. In other words, we know pretty well where every ballot is, where it went, and who has it. So this is not a stolen election. On the contrary, we reversed the entire game of war along the lines of Sun Tzu, the art of war. And Trump was brilliant and still is brilliant at it. Just want to say again that for our listeners who aren't incredibly read up on who Ginny Thomas is and what she does, she is a massive player in not just the MAGA movement, but the broader conservative movement or whatever you want to call it. She has been for a long time. She is the exact opposite of a nobody. During the Trump administration, she would get these multiple meetings and sit downs at the White House, including with a personal audience of then President Trump. And she would do things that would absolutely enrapture the guy and supply him regularly with these lists of people to hire and people to fire, floating to the idea over and over again that the fucking Trump administration was infiltrated by too much cultural Marxism. Trump needed to purge the deep state of cultural Marxism or else his agenda would forever be hobbled, was basically the pitch that she seriously made to him again and again. And the fucking guy. And I just want to give you an example of how hilarious these lists were that she would supply Trump and the Trump White House. Jonathan Swan at Axios did some really good reporting on them. Lachlan Marquet and I reported on it uh, some in the Trump World book we put out back in 2020. And What we found was at least one of these lists that Ginny gave President Trump was recommending that Dan Bongino needed to be installed at a very senior level in the Trump administration. Bongino is a white hat. Get him in there. (laughs) Yes. So again, just to recap quickly, Dan Bongino now has a pretty high perch at Fox News as a host and an on-air personality. And Will, give me your assessment of Mr. Bongino and what kind of senior administration official in the White House at DHS doing counterterrorism or whatever the hell, what kind of person he would be in that position? Well, you know, he was in the Secret Service. It's hard to imagine Dan Bongino as what kind of role. I mean, he'd certainly be like a very charged up personality. But how different is that really from normal Trump personnel choices uh, in terms of like, I saw this guy on Fox News. (laughs) The one other thing I wanted to say about Steve Pachenik, who is relevant here because he's Ginny Thomas's sort of election fraud guru, is I talked to our friends at the Knowledge Fight podcast, who we've, we've had on the podcast before and are sort of the Steve Pachenik experts out there. And a funny thing about this guy is he sort of treats Alex Jones as like his like little pawn. It's like they'll have these talks about the election for months, and then he'll come on and say, oh, yeah, this is all a fake election with watermarks. And it's like, well, maybe you could have mentioned that. As the Knowledge Fight guys pointed out, Alex Jones was all mixed up in the January 6th riot. He was there amongst the crowd outside at this very kind of hectic moment. He easily could have found himself potentially in some position to get indicted. And then a couple days later, Steve Pachena comes on and he says, oh yeah, me and my spec ops buddies, we engineered the riot. It's all part of our plan. You were simply a toy as part of our scheme. And you're like, can you imagine? It's like, you're supposed to be my buddy. Maybe you could give me a heads up about the riot you were planning. (laughs) Okay. So, and this is part of the brain trust that the markedly influential Ginny Thomas is using 
to try to help buttress and provide fuel for the fire of Donald Trump's attempted coup in 2020 and 2021. This is the intellectual undergirding of what was going on. It's really incredible. And we talk about this all the time on the podcast, but I think there's really no sign that obviously Clarence Thomas is still a Supreme Court justice. I mean, Jenny Thomas, I think, is still an influential conservative activist. So there's no sign that getting extremely red-pilled on QAnon and related theories really hurts your career on the right. Okay, so a new feature we have here on Fever Dreams is a little arts and crafts corner where we like to talk about culture. We like to talk about the higher and finer things of life, such as poetry. Now, Swin, I think you've dug up some verses that might enlighten the audience. I'm so glad that we're doing this in the final small handful of batches of episodes where I'm co-hosting with you because I couldn't imagine better dramatic readings to do, like close to on my way out the door. Okay, so just to back it up a little bit, last week, a new Trump lawsuit was filed. This is one of the single greatest pieces of legal filing and legal documentation I've ever read in my entire life, just because of the Coen brothers' high comedy or low comedy, depending on who you talk to, style of it. So basically, Trump has filed a RICO lawsuit against Hillary Clinton, Nellie and Bruce Orr, not just one of the Orrs, James Comey, John Podesta, Christopher Steele, and of course the FBI lovers, as he loves to call them frequently, and a whole bunch of other bettinors of Trumpland mythology. I'm going to quote real quickly from an article explaining what the hell this thing is. Trump on Thursday filed a sprawling civil lawsuit against 2016 Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton, the Democratic National Committee, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, and more than a dozen others alleging a vast conspiracy to undermine his 2016 presidential campaign and administration with accusations of Russian collusion. The dirty dossier. Hell yes. The dodgy dossier, maybe. I prefer dodgy. Anyway, the complaint filed in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida claims that the former president has suffered at least $24 million in damages, in addition to the loss of present and future businesses due to Clinton, the DNC, and others. Did you follow that, Will? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, barely. <laughs> okay, so just to get the usual obvious throat clearing out of the way, this is just patently stupid. This lawsuit is not going anywhere. Trump is not going to bring down Hillary Clinton and Nellie or finally using the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. But whatever. Trump's going to do it, so go with God. He obviously has a lengthy history of frivolous lawsuits during and before his time as American president. But this one looks even more like your average gateway pundit blog post, like even more so than your typical Trump suit against his enemies real and perceived. So, Really, when if you spend enough time covering and examining the nuances of Trumpland legal communities, as I do, you start to notice that he has his supposed A team of lawyers. Obviously, they're proliferated with their own weirdo characters in their own right, but they often handle the more high stakes and higher profile litigation and investigations that have been coming Trump's way, particularly in the aftermath of the January 6th riot. But aside from that basket of lawyers. He has all these different legal B-teams of personal attorneys who are currently handling an array of other extraneous bullshit that Trump is dealing with or putting in court nowadays. For instance, remember the class action lawsuit that Trump brought against the social media companies? Remember that from last year? No, I really didn't. And I think that's such a sign of how he sort of throws these things off. Right, exactly. And that one involves the, a lawyer who is Greta Van Susteren's husband. Like, that's its own little B-team. This B-team, we'll call it the Trump-Rico, is maybe the purest, most Trumpian of those little 
mini Trump lawyer armadas. Okay, so I want to get into the guy who is leading this little legal team of Trumps, and he is a Florida man named Peter Tickton. Great, great name, by the way. Well, have you ever heard of Peter Tickton? Peter TikTok. No, I have not before. Okay. So he's a guy who for a long time has pitched himself as a Trump buddy who also does a bunch of lawyering on the side. Peter Tickton TikTok wants you to know that he and the 45th U.S. president go way back. In late 2020, he put out his book titled What Makes Trump Tick? My Years with Donald Trump <laughs> from New York Military Academy. And I should know because I'm Peter Tickton. <laughs> I gotta be honest, until I read it out loud on this pod recording, I didn't realize what he was doing with the title of his stupid fucking book. Anyway, the subhead of the book is my years with Donald Trump from New York Military Academy to the present. Now, do listeners at this point think I'm doing a dramatic reading from his book? Hell no. That is not what I'm doing at all. I've got something way better in store for you. I shit you not. Well, I also have to say here, I mean, this guy's connection to Trump is basically that he went to high school with him. And it sort of seems to me like the connection is pretty tenuous otherwise. Like, it's not even clear to me that they were really friends. He's not Rudy Giuliani. He's not even a John Dowd or anything like that. He is not a lawyer who is like super, super, super tight with the former president. Yeah, it's just like, I went to high school with this guy. Now, let me tell you about how great he is. I mean, this is not high level cronying. This is kind of like depressing cronying. Oh, 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 oh. but I have something for you right now that will uplift you a little bit on his law firm's website, legalbrains.com. Not making that up. Legalbrains.com sounds vaguely sexual. If you go onto his bio page on that website, for some reason, I was looking at it over the weekend. I decided to scroll down to the bottom of the page. I have no idea why. There's this little tab that says Peter's poems. I clicked on it thinking there is no way that that is actually what I think it is. It's a bunch of poems that were basically blogged to his law firm website by Peter TikTok, the currently fresh-faced new Trump attorney who's doing the RICO lawsuit against Hillary Clinton and the Orr family. <laughs> As an aesthete yourself, I mean, how do you think these poems are? Oh my god, they're so good. Okay, there are a good number of them on the webpage. I don't have time to get through all of them, so I'm going to pick a select three. I'm going to start with the one titled Simply Motel. I love the brevity of that. Here we go. I'm locked up in this room, you see, with plastic faces on color TV. I'll turn it off and be alone, sitting by an unused phone, thinking what it's all about, and in silence let my pen shout. <laughs> That's kind of like you got to write a poem to kind of like lead up to writing the next poem. You know? <laughs> that's like your hype poem. And that's also kind of like, I don't know, I'm getting like kind of like a Warren Zevon vibe here. You get out in this hotel. Right. It's like Warren Zevon sitting on the toilet, basically. Yeah. So what else do we have? Okay. The next one is titled, are you ready for this, Will? A Playboy Puzzle. Okay. Now, now you're talking my language. In this world of goods so new, we look for truth and see too few. Things that fit a life for one who longs for some fine, honest fun. At last, the marketplace has brought a toy that causes lasting thought of life and sex and puzzled joy. A chopped up mess of Miss Playboy. Okay, holy shit. Hang on. I have to pause the dramatic reading right there. A chopped up mess of Miss... What the fuck? This is uh, Mr. Police. I gave you all the clues <laughs> on LegalBrains.com slash poetry. Okay. Breezing past that. A jigsawed copy of past releases. The poor girl has gone to pieces. Cut apart 
by some contraption, as she longed for loving action. But all's not lost, so calm those fears, that no one knows and no one cares. The fragments interlock to show the maiden from her head to toe. Just start to gather up her face, then the border, find the place. For all the pieces that join to one, making up this new canned fun, rated for parental guidance. What? <laughs> Hello, is this a Detective Bosch? I got it. Wait, wait, you. wait, wait. So is this a pro-family censorship and parental guidance poem? I'm thrown by the ending. I take back how much I was mocking Peter TikTok earlier. This shit has layers. After we're done recording this, I'm sitting down with this and I'm going to like fucking do a bunch of notes in the margin of the pages. All right. Give me one more. Okay. Our final reading today is titled The Toronto Subway System. <laughs> I saw her eyes and at once knew that I felt love and hoped she too would respond in likewise fashion to want to meet and share this passion. No, not for sex or life together, but just to love before we wither. Our minds could meet and love could grow if I'd only never to say hello. Well, there she goes. She's out of view. There goes a love we never knew. Momentary anguish and I walk away to fall in love 10 times a day. Oh, my heart is breaking at the end of that one. Damn, the Lothario. My man's out on the town. So people get to have their hobbies, including and perhaps especially if they are doing lawyering for Donald Trump with the Trump administration. Former Trump White House lawyer Don McGahn liked to play guitar and think he was a Grateful Dead fan or something like that. I don't know, like real classic rock, dad rock stuff. Similarly, Jay Sekulow, who was a longtime personal attorney to Donald Trump, also had his classic rock cover band. I think they would do like covers of like Journey or stuff like that. This is next level. This is by far my favorite Trump hobby of a Trump lawyer. Will, give me your five second review if you were writing something on Amazon of this guy's wealth of poetry. Yeah, I would say accessible, but unsettling. <laughs> the Playboy one. I got to go revisit that later. But much to think about. Anyway, something else to think about. Will, who do we have on tap this week as our interview guest? Sure. So this week we've got Elizabeth Williamson. She's a feature writer for the New York Times and of note for our podcast. She's the author of a new book on the Sandy Hook shooting and how Alex Jones and Infowars twisted it in all these terrible ways. It's called Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. I've read it. It's a great read. You know, I think a very affecting read. She got a lot of access to the victims' families as they were fighting for justice against Alex Jones. And of course, Alex Jones is now potentially facing an arrest warrant in one of these legal cases, so I'm sure she'll have lots of thoughts on that as well. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. (laughs) 
Okay, today on Fever Dreams, we have Elizabeth Williamson. She's a feature writer at the New York Times and the author of the new book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. It's a great new book talking about both the Sandy Hook school shooting, especially for our purposes, it's interesting because it covers the way that internet conspiracy theorists and in particular Alex Jones and InfoWars really twisted what happened in Sandy Hook and then how that affected the families there. Elizabeth got really credible access to a lot of the people involved, including many of the families. Elizabeth, thank you for joining the podcast. It's great to be with you both. Thanks. Great. So first off, how did you get onto this story? So in the middle of 2018, the first two victims' family members filed defamation suits against Alex Jones in Texas. And initially, I thought that this would be a really interesting test of whether the First Amendment, as Jones and other conspiracy theorists repeatedly claim, protects falsehoods spread online by millions of people that result in, as it did for the Sandy Hook families, years of torment and threats. When I was talking with Lenny Posner, who is the father of Noah, who is the youngest Sandy Hook victim, he has a tech background and had been kind of tracking this whole phenomenon. And he sort of educated me that Sandy Hook is a foundational story about how false narratives and misinformation have gained traction in our society. So you go from Sandy Hook to Pizzagate to QAnon to Charlottesville to coronavirus to the 2020 election lie. And finally, the January 6th Capitol insurrection. You've got all these people who, as we know, for reasons of ideology or tribalism or like Alex Jones, mostly for profit, are willing to deny accepted truth and science. And as time has gone on, they've become, as we saw on January 6th, more and more willing to defend them with these false beliefs that they hold with confrontation and and with violence. Talk to me about what it was like sort of exploring the way that Sandy Hook is sort of so key to the modern like conspiracy theory landscape. How did you start looking into that? So I started by talking with Lenny and what he was basically able to demonstrate to me. And then what I learned as I went off and continued to research the book, is you've got these people who were the original Sandy Hook conspiracists. I mean, there were two groups. There was one group that was pretty easily convinced of the truth of the shooting. And that surprisingly was a group of young moms who had children the same age as the kids who were killed at Sandy Hook. And Lenny was kind of into, and again, Lenny Posner, the father of Noah Posner, who died at Sandy Hook, he was really into trying to develop bunk individuals who believe these theories with facts. And so he started to confront some of them online, particularly at the very beginning by joining this huge Facebook group at the time called Sandy Hook Hoax. But what I learned is that a lot of these people were content providers to Alex Jones, who was really the super spreader of Sandy Hook hoax theory. And they were a really hardcore group of people who were willing to do pretty much almost anything to prove their theories including making multiple trips to Newtown, submitting hundreds of public records requests, following the families, confronting them, writing them repeatedly, calling them. And then they ended up raising a lot of money for themselves and for this sort of, quote, quest for truth and appearing repeatedly on Alex Jones's show. So he would send a cameraman with this one really pernicious hoaxer named Wolfgang Halbig on his trips to Newtown to confront people. And they kind of worked hand in glove. And then you saw Alex Jones sort of really hit his high watermark during the Trump presidency where a lot of his theories, not Sandy Hook, but around other major events, 
and also around immigrants and Islam were echoed from the White House. You mentioned the families here. I mean, obviously, there's sort of two parts to this story once the conspiracy theories start going. Obviously, there's Alex Jones and his cohort. But talk to me about what the families went through when obviously they're already grieving their children or other relatives who were killed. And then now they're being told that it was fake or that they themselves are are actors. Yeah, I mean... This started, it began really hours after the shooting. So Alex Jones's show on InfoWars on the day of the shooting, December 14, 2012, he started immediately saying that this was some kind of a false flag, a pretext by the government to seize Americans' firearms. He's then started to, and this is a sort of departure for Jones because he didn't often target individuals unless, of course, you're talking about George Soros or Obama or, you know, major public figures. He was targeting individual family members, particularly people like Robbie Parker, whose daughter Emily died at Sandy Hook. He was the very first parent to speak publicly about his daughter and her death. So he did that the night after Sandy Hook. And as he was stepping to the lectern to make a statement, he looked out, he had thought he was meeting one or two reporters. And of course, it was just this sea of cameras and microphones. And he was completely nervous and undone. He had just lost his daughter. And he gave this sort of half gasp, half laugh as he stepped to the lectern. And Jones played that moment in just like a split second in what was an otherwise really heartbreaking, wrenching presentation. He played that over and over for years, accusing Robbie Parker of being an actor who had helped stage his daughter's death and the wider tragedy. So that was kind of the beginning of the abuse. And so what happened was people got onto a Facebook page that the Parker's friends had set up in order to fly, you know, to raise money to fly Emily's body back to Utah for burial where her family had roots. They got on there and started calling him Robbie, her dad, a liar and a profiteer. He received on his Facebook page a friend request from Adam Lanza, who was the gunman, someone posing as him. People started writing them at their home. So then they knew that they had their address and they knew where they lived. People followed them on the streets. The other family members, conspiracy theorists, looked in their windows. They dug through their trash. They called them on the phone. They made death threats against them. They abused them on all their social media accounts. Lenny Posner actually had someone jailed for threatening his life. Someone shot a gun into the home of one parent. So it was a pretty grim and just horrific secondary trauma that they all suffered as a result of people who believed these false beliefs. And obviously, a lot of these insane and just downright wrong, both factually and morally conspiracy theories are going to proliferate in some form or another, no matter what. But if it weren't for Alex Jones, the man at the center of all of this, do you think this would have gotten out of hand anywhere close to the magnitude that it did. I guess my question is, like, we all know he was central to this. How gigantic a megaphone was he for this stuff? It's a great question, Swin. So he was definitely a super spreader of this hoax. I mean, he was the person who 
funded Wolfgang Halbig, who sent a cameraman with him, who put his website, Sandy Hook Justice, he would flash the URL of his website up on the screen so that people could give him money. And this one guy raised $100,000 to fund his trips and his public records requests and his pursuit of the families. He had a lot of these individuals on his show He gave them, like I said, he gave them kind of promotional access and he relied on them for content. At the same time, the social media platforms where these people gathered gave them a kind of power and reach and speed that they never would have had otherwise. I mean, you guys know, I mean, we we all have a conspiracy theorist in our family. You know, it's the person who sort of buttonholes you at a family picnic or reunion and, or the guy on the subway who wants to hand you a Xerox sheet with his crazy claims or at Sandy Hook happened at this moment when so many Americans were on social media that these individuals were able to find each other. They were able to gather. They were able to kind of like embroider this whole body of hoax theory around Sandy Hook. They built each other up. They gave each other ups if they came up with a new ripple in the plot. And they were able to speed this material across the globe. Right. And in doing your deep dives and your investigations and your myriad interviews for this book, what is the, and it may be tough to pick just one example here, but what do you think was the strangest thing that happened to you while reporting this out? <laughs> A lot of strange things happened, as you can imagine. But I think some of the more compelling situations that I found myself in was speaking with individual people who believed in these theories and trying to kind of get to the center of why and and why, you know, despite this mountain of evidence supporting the official narrative of Sandy Hook. Why did they continue to believe this and just sort of like have this kind of death grip on this wild theory that this happened? And one of the people I interviewed was a woman named Kelly Watt, who is from Tulsa, Oklahoma. She had a cleaning business of which she is the sole employee. She told me that she really wished she would have finished college and that of all things, she wanted to be a first grade teacher, which was so ironic to me because of course, first graders were the children who were killed. And she just, she started out, I mean, it was so eerie to me because in the nineties, she pursued this idea that the Department of Education, liberals in the Department of Education were indoctrinating Tulsa public school children and that they were turning them into these compliant liberals who wouldn't obey their parents, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just such an early kind of backward echo of the CRT controversy now that Republicans are pursuing. And while she was pursuing this, and this was a time before the internet. So I talked to the people at the Tulsa newspaper who really remembered her. She kept showing up, wanting them to write about this. She frequented school board meetings. She showed up at people's houses in the middle of the night. She spread this material around her so-called research, which she still has piled up in her attic. In the meantime, her whole family was falling apart around her. Her husband lost the family business, descended into a depression, started abusing alcohol. They lost their home. She ended up living in this tiny apartment with her daughter. And I interviewed her daughter later, and she just said, there's a certain failure to launch about my mom, which I noticed was a trait in a lot of these individuals. Like adhering to these kinds of theories gave them a peer group. It gave them a social life. It gave them new kinds of bonds. It gave them people who didn't 
make fun of them or tease them because they believed these wild theories. In fact, they supported each other. It turned someone who was a cleaning lady in Tulsa, Oklahoma, into what she called herself a researcher and an author. She contributed to this book, 400 pages of wild theories about Sandy Hook called the subtle title, Nobody Died at Sandy Hook. So people were sort of transformed by this. And so they weren't about to give it up. And anybody who was going to tell them that, hey, would you take a look at these hundreds of thousands of pages of evidence? Anyone who would try to confront them with facts or with the truth of what happened, including people like Lenny Posner, who tried to offer them documents showing that his son Noah had been born, had gone to school at Sandy Hook, had died there. Those people were not only villains in the plot, they were actually So you've touched on this. I think a question I get a lot is, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? What have you managed to glean about that question in your reporting? So what I think, and this sort of surprised me, and I would be so curious to hear what you think, Will, because of all the work you've done on QAnon. But even with something like QAnon, which is definitely something that's been thriving on the right, a false theory that's been thriving on the right, in fact, the whole body of theories, is that it's much more about social identification, self-esteem, and sort of self-enhancement, the sort of psychic income that these people get from this than it is about politics. I mean, politics, a lot of these folks started out being kind of liberal conspiracy theorists around JFK or the plane crash that killed Senator Paul Wellstone of Minnesota or a kind of liberal lion. But then they're hard right. And it was sort of like they were following their crowd rather than any kind of political epiphany that they had was just much more about belonging and being part of a tribe. Well, it's interesting you can point that out. And I just want to read you a Daily Beast headline from mid-2016 real quickly, and you'll see how this relates in a moment. Donald Trump is turning Republicans into anti-vaxxers. Study after study has shown no link between anti-vaxxers and party affiliation until now. And again, this was July 2016. What you were saying reminded me of that, because you were talking about how so much of this, so much of these people who really do buy into this grotesque stuff in such an intense and and, and, and dedicated way, a lot of it seems to be because they finally have a crowd, they have an audience, they have a place where they belong. How much overlap in your wealth of reporting for this book did you find between a Sandy Hook quote-unquote truther and other conspiracy movements that just absolutely flourished over the past nearly decade since Trumpism came along. Yeah. So that headline is really prescient because these individuals who first kind of grabbed on to the Sandy Hook conspiracy theory, they jumped from one to the next to the next. So they embraced elements of QAnon, Pizzagate, which as Will told me for the book, was a forebear of QAnon. This idea that Democrats were trafficking children from the basement of Comet Ping Pong, which is just a very short walk from where I'm sitting right now. They grabbed onto all of these things. And it was because they were following their tribe, but it was also because they were innately conspiratorially minded and they were deeply distrustful of the government and all official narratives. So whether it's the CDC, if you're talking about coronavirus or it's the mainstream media, if you're talking about reporting on any major public event and certainly the federal government. So Trump kind of was able to harness 
that group of people who were traditionally pretty politically disaffected and turn them into a constituency that put him over the top. So, Elizabeth, you've clearly studied Alex Jones for years. Why do you think he is so desperate to avoid this Sandy Hook deposition? I mean, obviously, we can all kick around a lot of good theories as to why. I guess a second part to my question here is, has there ever been a moment where the guy has shown any indication that he knows what he is doing. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't he also a family man? He presumably has a family. And even if he doesn't have kids, he uh, he was clearly born as one. Like, he knows what it <laughs> means to have a family. And is there just a mental block where there is no comprehension whatsoever of what he, through his seeking of furthering these conspiracy theories, furthering his own profit margins, is doing to these average people who have already suffered an incalculable loss. So Swin, he is absolutely a family man. He has four children, including children who were around the Sandy Hook victims' ages. He calls himself a family man. As a matter of fact, when he was on in 2017, when he was on a now infamous interview with Megyn Kelly on NBC, he knew this was going to be a disaster for him. And he tried to do a broadcast. It aired on Father's Day, which was just horrible timing. And he tried to sort of talk about, oh, I'm a dad and all that. I think probably the most charitable thing I could say about Alex Jones is that he was utterly unprepared for the high profile and the scrutiny that his affiliation with Donald Trump would bring to him and to his business. Before then, I mean, he had done this for 15 years before the Trump era, longer than that. He had said that the 9-11 attacks were planned by the government, that the Oklahoma City bombing was an inside job. So he was no stranger to controversy, but he just, he was kind of, as one of the Sandy Hook family lawyers put it, he was just shouting at clouds. He was a cult phenomenon in Austin, Texas. The theme is keep Austin weird. He was part of that. He was sort of like late night stoner entertainment. But then all of a sudden through Roger Stone, who became an InfoWars host and was always like, I described him as like a jackal kind of circling the campfire, which was the Republican establishment looking for his way in. And Donald Trump was Roger Stone's way in. And Roger Stone's sort of evil genius was he could see that Alex Jones's listeners would be a really valuable constituency for a candidate like Trump who was in this running in this really crowded Republican primary field. And so in December of 2015, Trump went on Alex Jones's show. And from there, Alex Jones was launched. He was at the Republican primary. He wasn't on the outside, outside the barricade with his bullhorn. He was right in there on media row causing trouble. He was on the convention floor when Trump accepted the nomination. And with all that came enormous scrutiny and finally a demand for accountability for what he'd been doing. And I think he was totally unprepared for that. I think he had no idea that he should have. I mean, because his audience more than doubled between 2013 and 2016 when Trump was elected to 50 million monthly average viewers of his two websites. So he should have known and he was raking in a ton of money like 
court documents say he had revenues of more than $50 million a year during the Trump presidency. So, but he didn't seem like he was prepared for the scrutiny. And he's constantly scrambling, trying to cloak himself in the First Amendment, saying that gives him a right to say and do whatever he wants. But, and he's got money to pay lawyers. But if you look at his protestations, every time a lawsuit's filed against him, there's a little bit of shock there. Like he's still, now I think he gets it, but before he just had no idea that the boom was coming down for him. I think what you're getting at here is I always kind of thought of the Sandy Hook thing as sort of a fatal mistake on Jones's part. Because if you think about, and I think you're right on the money that the affiliation with Trump is what dredged it up. Because if you look at the timeline here, so he gets in on this Sandy Hook stuff, 2012, 2013, let's say. But it's not really until 2017, 2018 that people start being like, hey, that was really messed up. Kind of in the you know broader world that it makes Jones, I think, toxic in a way that he had not been even for several years after that. That And then suddenly these lawsuits are getting filed. And, you know, you mentioned this idea that on his show, he'll still say like, oh my God, can you believe I'm still dealing with the Sandy Hook thing? Now, a lot of that is his doing because his lawsuits have been dragging it out. Right. On another topic, you recently wrote an article for the Times back in February about TikTok. And this is a teenage girl whose TikToks, she's posting on TikTok and eventually a stalker shows up at her house with a gun. Her stepfather or father ends up shooting the guy. It seems like you're really kind of staking out a beat on some of the darker corners of the internet. Has this given you any insight into what the internet is doing to us? <laughs> Not a lot of good things. <laughs> yeah, judging from that. You don't have to be a Sandy Hook conspiracist to sort of be pulled in by the kind of like siren call of social media, right? I mean, it just gives you this community and this kind of like, I think about this, like I went off of Twitter for a couple years just to finish this book because I was so distracted by it. I'm like one of those Skinnerian pigeons, like pecking for, you just kind of go back to it and you're, oh, what's that person saying? Oh, somebody like this. Oh, that sort of intensified is what this means for some people. I mean, the TikTok star that I wrote about that you just mentioned, she didn't even have a TikTok account until the pandemic. And she went on there to kind of entertain herself and just sort of dancing and lip syncing. She's really, at that time, she was 14 years old and she was really pretty and she attracted all of these fans and including, she got a million followers. So it doesn't take a very, even a tiny percentage of weirdos among that group, a group that large, and you've got trouble. And that's exactly what happened to her. It's really addictive. It's something that pulls a lot of people in. It provides us with something that seems to be missing. I didn't really investigate this for the book, But there's a kind of like sort of almost religious quality to some of these groups. People go there for a sense of like affirmation and fulfillment that seems to be otherwise missing in their lives. And the idea that these social media platforms like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter They, you know, it's part of their business model to keep you on there, as you guys know, as long as possible so they can scarf up your personal information and feed you advertising based on it. So it's a kind of devious thing that capitalizes on our own psychology. I mean, that's sort of what I'm learning. And I first thought that politics played a bigger role. I think this is much more about some form of social fulfillment that Americans, and well, not only Americans, 
all users of social media are seeking. I think that's right on the money. I mean, I think there's a lot of like, how can we stop people from believing this stuff? But often I think it's they prefer to, to be frank. Okay, great. Well, Elizabeth Williamson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Once again, folks, the book is called Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. I really recommend it. She's also on Twitter at NYT Liz. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Swin. It was great to join you guys. For this week's installment of our beloved recurring segment, Fresh Hell, Will Summer, you and I don't really talk about the Daily Wire maybe as much as we should on this podcast. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, I think they're pretty influential. They have like a huge Facebook presence. Obviously, Ben Shapiro, who runs the Daily Wire, is a very big deal in podcasting and general conservative punditry. But to be honest, it's just they're typically like it's kind of like we don't talk about like kind of what's just every day on Fox News as well, because they're typically kind of like pretty mainline conservative. Right. And the Daily Wire isn't nearly as funny as it should be unless they're doing things like pimping Ben Shapiro's razor company. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So this is in the future. You won't buy a Gillette razor. You'll buy a Ben Shapiro razor and you might shave with a gateway pundit shaving gel. So in this case, the Daily Wire is sort of in a feud with Harry's Razors, the direct-to-consumer razor blade company we all know from podcast ads and everywhere else, which is to say that the Daily Wire last year, they lost their Harry's ads because Harry's took offense, I think understandably, to a segment the Daily Wire did featuring a guy who promotes gay-to-straight conversion therapy. So did you listen to the segment? Was it in the vein of we're just asking questions, or was it as I can expect from some people at the Daily Daily Wire, just full on. Oh, yeah, this is a cool thing. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty unpleasant. They had this guy on who does it and promotes it, and he made all kinds of homophobic, transphobic accusations. And so Harry's Razors dropped the Daily Wire. Well, a year later, the Daily Wire is going to have their revenge because Jeremy Boring, the guy who runs the Daily Wire alongside Ben Shapiro, he's kind of like one of these like epic bacon conservative meme guys. And so he's now back with his own direct consumer brand called Jeremy's Razors. And this is sort of his curb your enthusiasm. Larry David famously opened a spite coffee shop next to his enemy's coffee shop. And in much the same way, Jeremy Boring has been buying ads for Jeremy's Razors across from Harry's Razors. And he kicked this all off with an ad for his new razor company that is just supposed to make you go like, uh, this is epic. We got to play a clip from the ad here. Do you remember when there were two genders and only one and a half of them had to shave their mustaches? Oh, hi. I'm Jeremy Boring, CEO and God King of The Daily Wire. Harry's Razors used to advertise on our shows. They're a great product, and we were happy to do it. That's before some peon who works for me went and said that boys are boys and girls are girls. And that was just too much for Harry's. They condemned our views. Views held by millions of Americans and virtually every human who's walked the planet until about 15 minutes ago as inexcusable. And they dropped their ads from our network because of what they called values misalignment. You're damn right our values are misaligned. And it's not just Harry's either. Gillette razors used to be the best a man could get. Then they decided that men are too toxic. Unless you're the kind of man who teaches his daughter to shave her beard. If that makes sense to you, keep buying Gillette. But if you've had enough of the woke bullshit, and you're tired of paying companies like Harry's and Gillette to hate you? <laughs> then buy my new razor instead. Behold, Jeremy's razors. Yes, they're real. Yes, 
They're fabulous. But Jeremy, you say, you're a stealth silver fox with a salt and pepper beard that's the envy of lesser men. You're damn right I am. And I want to be clear that shaving with a Jeremy's razor won't actually make you look more like yes, me. Yes, you're giving me fierce. You're giving me power. Could make you look more like this guy, though. And that's the most homoerotic moment you'll ever get from a Jeremy's razor commercial. So it opens up. He's driving a sports car. He's walking around with, you know, these fleets of beautiful women. And then he says at one point he grabs a flamethrower, which I believe is the Elon Musk flamethrower, a classic tell for like a corny Internet dude. And he he turns it on not only a stack of Harry's razors, but also Gillette razors. What did Gillette ever do to you? That's just uncalled for. Well, I'm glad you asked, right? I mean, Gillette is kind of like enemy number one in the conservative media going back a couple years. Now, folks might forget to say, oh, why are they so mad about the razors, right? Well, remember in like 2018 when Gillette did the ad where it was like, this is not your father's razor. We're a nice razor company and we're the razor company that's against domestic violence and what have you. Oh, the woke corporations strike again. <laughs> this was like one of the first crimes committed by woke capital. So ever since then, they've really had a beef with Gillette. This is now the sort of the new era. Jeremy Boring sort of has this sort of glib attitude towards it where he says, don't give your money to these, you know, woke corporations. Give it to me. And this kind of like, haha kind of thing. I have to say, I did a little price comparison. I do believe Jeremy's razors are for a pack of eight going to run you about $2 more than Harry's razors. So if you're thinking about making the jump. For just a pack of eight. Yeah, so I had to do kind of like a flat. That was the closest like price comparison I could get. Oh, that's so lame. If you're thinking about jumping to Ben Shapiro's side in terms of your grooming routine, you might want to consider that. But I think the reason I say this is fresh hell, you might say, oh, who cares? Let these guys have their razors. And obviously, I have to say, the video is pretty well put together. But at the same time, I think this is an interesting item in the growing sort of conservative ecosystem of like sort of trying to have their own commerce, right? And so this is mainly a thing with social media where they'll get kicked off of Twitter and then they go to social media networks of their own or kind of the big one they're working on is getting their own payment processors for credit cards and to process payments. Famously, they were all kicked off of places like GoFundMe. So when they riot at the U.S. Capitol, again, they can Venmo each other things without using Venmo, of course. Right, right, exactly. So they had to come up with this thing called Give, Send, Go, which was originally to send missionaries, but is now to send truckers to Washington, D.C. and fund them. And we sort of see each of these things coming up. And, and I got to say, I mean, I think for Jeremy Boring and Ben Shapiro and The Daily Wire, I'm not quite sure who owns this razor company, but I do think that it's probably a pretty good racket for them. And who could forget the Freedom Phone, right? There's all these kind of like, now they have conservative razors. And what's the uh, URL for the website of this? <laughs> <laughs> it's IHateHarrys.com. My favorite. <laughs> so it's very much aimed at this feud at Harry's. My favorite things about these various conservative grifts and or supposed business ventures is how deeply rooted they are in just pure cultural grievance. Like who who isn't already completely bought into this ecosystem would understand what that URL <laughs> means. Oh, yeah. I hate. Is it like Prince Harry? Is it who knows? Right. I was just explaining the Gillette ad again. I mean, the thing I always think about is how deep the lore is with these guys and how it's like they still call people pajama boys, which is now, I think, a 13 year old reference to an Obamacare ad. There's a really great oral tradition. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. 
In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.